I think it might be a mistake to compare a fellowship too closely with your friend group. A fellowship is probably closer akin to your coworkers. Obviously, if you're at your work situation, you're probably going to be at least amicable with most people, but it doesn't necessarily mean like you won't hate that one coworker. You might really dislike the wizard in your party because he's like an arrogant asshole, but you're going to have to deal with him to get through this emergency. Welcome to Worldcasting, where we discuss real made-up things. I'm your host, Taylor, and today we will be discussing the Fellowship trope in speculative fiction. Since its naming in The Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship has been a mainstay theme in fiction. A band of personalities with friendships forged in the fires of danger and bound to a unifying purpose set forth to explore our invented worlds. No matter the included characters, a fellowship is a beloved vehicle for themes of collaboration, devotion, and friendship. Today, joining me are Sean, Chris, and Daniel. Would you mind introducing yourselves? Hi, I'm Sean, a writer for the World Building magazine and an Irish college student. I'm Chris, a regular co-host on this podcast, and I teach world building and D&D to children for a nonprofit. Hello, I'm Daniel. I'm a Kyanite publishing author. Thank you for having me here today. Absolutely. I'm exceedingly excited to talk about this with you all. The Fellowship is a beloved trope in fantasy, some going as far as to say that if you do not include this trope, this function in your storytelling, then it could very well suffer because of it. So today I just want to talk a little bit about this and kind of hash out some strategies for implementing it well, some examples that we've seen, and just have a general discussion about this incredible concept in fantasy science fiction and how it can really be a boon to your world building, your writing, your game making. Let's start off with something easy. Apart from the Fellowship of the Ring, which, as I said, is the trope namer, what are some of your favorite fellowships in speculative fiction? For me, it have to be uh, the Dragonland series. It's actually where I got my start with that kind of trope. I mean, you have Strum, Brightblade, Tasselhoff, Tannis, and the whole group there. I mean, that's, to me, aside from Lord of the Rings, that is the definitive trope of a fellowship. What I grew up on is what I know, and that's what I designed a lot of my writing around, was that kind of style. Yeah, mine's pretty similar to that. I grew up reading a lot of R.A. Salvatore books, so I'm slightly on the other side of the pond technically, but you know, Dritz and his companions are sort of where I got my start with this sort of thing. He also has other groups as well, because he's got like the Artemis and Cherry spin-off books that have their own group as well. My example is a bit of an odd one because it's actually an urban fantasy one from the Scullery Peasant series by Derek Landy, but it's they're a group known as the Deadman. It's very comfortable in secondary world fantasy and high fantasy. So to see it somewhere else was fascinating to me. Because it's an urban fantasy and one that's quite dark, the cast members kind of rotate more often. So there's it's a fellowship that has existed in world for quite a long time. So there's a lot of kind of loss and new additions, which I thought was a very interesting way to handle the trope. Yeah, those are some fantastic examples. I, too, appreciate the Dragonlance group. I haven't quite read through the entire series, but there's there's nothing like that beginning where you do have them kind of all in that tavern and you're getting to know them. Some of my examples, well, I, I would say my most recent example is the Band series, which has two books right now by Nicholas Eames, the first one being Kings of the Wild and the second Bloody Rose, both depicting different fellowships. The whole series kind of uh, leaning into this concept of a band of adventurers, they call them mercenaries, each group having very distinct personalities, very distinct group personality, as in the group itself becomes a character. That dynamic really plays off well. These, These examples are fantastic. I'd like to ask, we've mentioned that fellowships are almost essential to storytelling, but aside from just 
it being a very effective tool of storytelling. What drew you all to crafting fellowships for your stories? It's most akin to real life, I feel. I mean, you're going to have friends and a orbit of people around you that kind of bring the best out of you or maybe even the worst sometimes, you know, and that kind of dynamic really translates well into a story that, you know, revolve around a, a group of people. Generally speaking, you're not going to go through life even uh, without that kind of experience, right? So it's easy to take your experience from real life and incorporate it into an actual story uh, revolving around a fellowship, I feel. Yeah, it also gives you just a lot more tools to work with. But I'll return to that point in a moment. I just wanted to mention real quickly, because all of our examples of our like favorite fellowships and the origin of it was all fantasy. I just for the people listening, it's not exclusive to fantasy or anything like that. You know, just an easy example in pop culture right now, like the Avengers is essentially a fellowship. And that's not really like, you know, classic D&D-esque fantasy type. You can apply it to any genre that you want in writing or movies or anything like that. But yeah, with a fellowship, like I was saying, it gives you a lot of tools because you can have characters play off of each other, assuming it's writing, in a way that they can help each other grow, they can show each other their weaknesses for the reader to experience, and it gives you so many different things to work with in different angles for your storytelling that it's just, it's it's so handy to have. I definitely agree with the kind of the above point. Like, a fellowship is such a useful tool. I think for me, why I love them is that they can be a really great way to kind of explore central themes of the work or the world or whatever you're trying to kind of have your characters embody. It doesn't have to be intentional, but it lets you bring together an umbrella of characters who can often have very different perspectives on what you're trying to say. And then it lets you play them off each other. So you can kind of get an, a deeper insight than if you only had one protagonist who's going through the motions with that one point of view. Yeah, there's a sociological theory, I believe it's social identity theory that states that our personalities only exist because of the presence of differing personalities. And the fact that using a fellowship allows us to have differing personalities to play off of each other, as we've said, just really brings out the personality of even the protagonist, anybody else in the group. And as Sean said, it's a great way to explore the themes that you're you're shooting for because it does give you a lot of opportunity with all those different personalities to do exactly that. To touch on what Chris said about some other examples of fellowship outside of fantasy, firstly, I think that we can continue to pull examples from our minds as we go along for any purpose, and we can even just stop talking and talk about some of those examples. We tend to learn best by example, so talking about these examples is perfectly acceptable. But to piggyback off of what he was saying, pretty much anything in the Bioware gaming backlog, you've got Mass Effect, which obviously has cast of characters that play off of each other. That is just kind of a mainstay of their style of storytelling. I think that their ability in that is just proof that it does work really, 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 really well. Getting into like the nitty gritty of individual characters and fellowships and the general team dynamic, what do you guys think makes a strong fellowship? And by contrast, what do you think makes a weak fellowship? Well, in terms of uh, strong, I think you have to have a good balance of both conflict and maybe mystery. Because I mean, not everybody's going to know everything about one another right off the bat and i think that kind of helps develop that uh, that friendship or that fellowship throughout the story to touch a little bit on what chris was saying the first thing that comes to mind when i say that kind of strength and conflict is something like star wars and that's technically a fellowship as well you know any of the star wars stories really you got you know han luke and leia and chewie all band together to do a quest <laughs> So, I mean, you know, and there was a lot of conflict in there, right? And there was a lot of character development. And by the end, you know, you had a soft spot for every one of the characters within the story arc. Even if you they weren't your favorite, I mean, they still, you know, had a, held a soft spot there. And I think that's that's really what drew me apart from what I've said previously into having a fellowship was that kind of dynamic where you can 
play around with the characters in a group setting and, and they all feed off each other or reject one another and kind of build their bond throughout the entire story. I'm going to go back momentarily to something you were saying, Taylor, how you brought up Bioware in, in the Mass Effect games. And I wanted to point out that these are good examples of different ways to do fellowships because at least when I very first thought of it, my initial impression was like, oh, like a fellowship is different than a story in which you have a main character, right? And that so that might be the first impression other people have as well. But I mean, maybe you're just smarter than me and you skipped right ahead to this conclusion. But you realize in situations like Mass Effect where technically the player's character is the main character, but there's still a fellowship, right? And it still makes sense. There's multiple ways to do a fellowship and to show different different types of storytelling, whether you have a main character or everyone is sharing the spotlight. For, since my background is mostly in Dungeons and Dragons, that's a situation where the entire fellowship is sharing this amorphous space as like each character is technically a main character, but you're also like a side character at the same time. So you're in this weird middle ground and you can use the fellowship in that regard, obviously, as well. Like I already said, in Mass Effect, you can do it with a main character and still have a very effective fellowship. And just to touch on the concept of like what a weak fellowship could be, um, I think also often it's um, very easy to see when a weak fellowship is just someone kind of drawing a bunch of groups together or character doors or whatever together because they have to be together, but there's no real unity between the fellowship. So it ends up breaking down into these two characters are always interacting. You know, they're the comedy duo, so they'll always be interacting but they'll have no actual outreach outside that comedy duo. And I think that's when I see that in a lot of TV shows will normally have a large cast that are all a fellowship, but all too often it just breaks down into a lot of kind of smaller fellowships. That means you don't really get that great of a connection between all of them. So I think what I'm getting from that specifically is that a strong fellowship should be one in which nearly everyone in the group, if not everyone in the group, has some sort of definable and discernible relationship with every other person in the group. This is the point that you, you just can't get a good fellowship with these broken groups. And really, I think we can kind of go back to our trope neighbor in this. And while we all have great affection for the Fellowship of the Ring and the fellowship that it made up, made up, other than perhaps in the films... You don't actually get a ton of that interconnectedness. Once they break up in the story, spoiler alert, for example, you said the, the, the comedy duo. You've got Mary and Pippin, who are essentially the, the comedy duo of that group. And they certainly have their own relationship, but I would argue that they, other than with Frodo and Sam and maybe Gandalf, they really don't, in the books, have that much of a relationship with everybody else in the group. I don't recall too many examples of where Merry and Pippin talked with Gimli or Boromir or um, Legolas. But in the films, they have a little bit of a take on that. I, I think they filled in the gap quite nicely. So I, I think that what you're saying, Sean, is absolutely correct. A, a weak fellowship is one in which the characters don't necessarily all have interconnectedness. A strong one is one in which you have that kind of interconnectedness. Not to say that the Fellowship of the Ring is a weak fellowship. It, it gave us a framework in which to build a fellowship in all sorts of settings. I was going to say, let that that warning be a lesson to all of you edgelord sitting in the corner of the tavern D&D players out there. Even though your character is very antisocial, please communicate with the other party members. It makes the story just so much better. That's a good that's a good point that I've thought about while you guys have spoken but haven't thought to say it. We've talked a lot about writing stories and things like that, but role-playing games like D&D and Pathfinder and all of that it, it relies on the concept of a fellowship. And honestly, understanding how fellowships work is a really solid way to understanding as a player or as a GM how you might want to go about building your fellowship, how you might want to go about interacting with your fellow players. This is not a trope that is by any means exclusive to storytelling, and it's perhaps the thing in, uh, upon which all tabletop role-playing games rely on. Yeah, everybody starts in a tavern. Everybody's rags to riches. <laughs> <laughs> they talk to a bald barkeep behind the counter. 
That that's also that also brings up a fantastic point and something I think we should talk about a little bit. What are good ways to bring a fellowship together? We kind of joke around as a community about it being cliche to bring them together in X, Y, or Z way. In your opinions, what are good ways to bring a fellowship together? It's funny, you, you mentioned everybody making fun of that everybody joins at a tavern and stuff when Dragonlance even did the same thing. Met at a tavern and <laughs> they all got together and went on a quest from there. But yeah, no, I mean, that's one of the things I avoid is those kinds of tropes. You know, my group got together naturally and as time went on, they crossed paths with somebody and they just happened to fall within the orbit of each other. And, you know, they went on a quest and met new people and new interactions. And again, some of them fell into orbit and kept going. And I mean, that's the way I've approached it anyways, to avoid those kinds of tropes because while they're, cool in some aspects and, and Dragonlance got away with it don't get me wrong you know but sometimes you know I, we're making fun of it it does stand out when when it happens too often we're talking about trope namers a little bit with fellowship of the ring Dragonlance is kind of the trope namer for the meat in the cavern absolutely i don't have notes prepared because i'm an ill-prepared person because i'm just like trying to very quickly think of a couple of general ways that you can get the fellowship together and two in particular different styles come to mind right away but the two main ways that came to my mind immediately are the first one is the call to action it'd kind of be the tavern trope but it's like hey there's a bounty because goblins are attacking some village nearby everyone <laughs> we need you all to come and then you can have a fellowship that for different motivations all have the same goal because one character is like oh i want to get paid one character is like i want to test my metal another character is like one of my friends was kidnapped by the goblins so i'm going and so they all get pulled in for different reasons but they're all aimed at the same goal and then the other one that I thought of very briefly was a shared emergency. And so this one is almost the inverse of that, where instead of everyone coming to it for different reasons, they're all essentially going to have the same motivation. And it's to deal with whatever the emergency is. We're all afflicted by some magical disease, so we're going to search for a cure. Our town is under attack, so we're all defending for our lives, et cetera, et cetera. Whether it's a shared emergency or call to action, through the course of dealing with that issue, whether it's the goblins or your town itself is under attack, you're hoping that you're going to create some bonds and they'll become the fellowship over the course of that first adventure, we'll call it. And then you can come up with other draws to pull them into the next chapter, the next act or whatever it may be. I agree with that. Some brilliant examples in there. Yeah. So this is less about how to do it specifically, but you know, there's a very common trope of sort of the mini fellowship. You can clearly see it there where it starts off with Frodo and his four friends decide to go off on a quest so we are, we've clearly had that, those bonds established at the beginning. So we don't need to spend too much time kind of setting them up. So they go off on their merry quest and things go awfully, but eventually they get to Rivendale where everybody's coming together to try and solve what to do with the ring. And then that sort of forges that larger group together through the shared emergency. Everybody has to get the, the very shiny ring into the lava before it's too late. You can kind of use that structure but have smaller subgroups within it because to help you build the actual fellowship because, you know, we're not all loners until we find our fellowship. That would be uh, somewhat not a great sentiment, I guess. And I feel like one of the other people that kind of handled the tropes pretty well and stayed away from the cliche traps is Wheel of Time. The fellowship there kind of came together more or less naturally. Touching on what Chris was saying, they kind of came together in regards to a overall world event that drew them all together. I think it was handled pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. I have not personally read the entirety of The Wheel of Time. However, I have read a good chunk of the first bit. And I, I agree. He, Robert Jordan, did a great job of bringing his characters together. And as you said, more or less felt natural. I would argue that that falls under the category, which, Chris, these categories are fantastic. Honestly, these two options are, I mean, I'm not saying that there are no other options available for a creator to bring characters together, but the shared emergency and the coming together for different motivations, both of those as distinct options, kind of overall umbrella concepts work really well for this kind of talk, this kind of storytelling, this kind of thought. I was also going to point out in terms of trying to relate 
a fellowship to like our real life experience. Like we've mentioned, like with friends and Sean was saying, you know, you're not alone until you have your group, right? I want to slightly caution. I think it might be a mistake to compare a fellowship too closely with your friend group. And as opposed to, I think a fellowship is probably closer akin to your coworkers, because like in the example Mm. of either a call to action or a shared emergency, these aren't always people you would pick um, necessarily. And this is another part of the fellowship dynamic between the different characters. Obviously, if you're at your work situation, you're probably going to be at least amicable with most people, but it doesn't necessarily mean like you won't hate that one coworker, right? You're going to have a really hard time dealing with that person, but because of your shared environment, you have to work with them. In a similar situation, especially if it's like a call to emergency one, you might really dislike the wizard in your party because he's like an arrogant asshole, but you're going to have to deal with him to get through this emergency. And so I just wanted to point out that Because if you compare it too much to a natural friend group, you might be like, well, why does X character stay with Y character when they have a really antagonistic relationship? They don't really seem to like each other. Their personalities don't gel. And that's the only caution I would make. It's, It's because they don't have a choice. They're not picking necessarily these people that are in their fellowship. It's through circumstance in the universe, really, that's pulling them together. And then it's your job as either the writer or the DM or your, you know, whatever to continue the circumstances in their lives that requires them to cooperate. Respectfully disagree. (laughs) (laughs) I hate to be that guy, you know, Um, (laughs) I agree to some aspect of it. I think it starts off as a coworker type of environment, but even, even with coworkers and, and there's going to be exceptions to the rules uh, for what you're saying, but even using like Dragonlance, for example, a lot of them didn't get along with Raceland. Practically the entire group didn't like him, but he was there and he was still amicable to the rest of the group. Everybody cared about him, even though they didn't really like him. And I think friendships too have that to a degree. And correct me if I'm wrong, even the Dragonlance became friends at one point. I mean, they started off kind of on their own dealing with the war that was you know, nipping at the heels of everybody and stuff. And eventually they all came together, but they all became friends in the end. And I feel like that's a fellowship is kind of that midway point. I feel rather than coworkers to me would be the front end of that. And then friendship being the final step. I mean, at least that's my opinion of it. Yeah, I actually think you're probably closer to the mark than my initial statement. Maybe instead of coworkers, I might compare it to like a military unit or something. You know, through shared trauma, you become very close to the people regardless of yeah their personality traits that you don't get along with. So yeah, I would definitely agree with your, your point that later on in the story as it has evolved, if not like each other, at least be like, well, you know, it's, it's that brother that I don't really like, but I still care what happens to him. Yeah, not to diminish what you were saying, Chris. Military units is a great way to look at it. I started thinking about The Office and Parks and Rec as a fellowship. <laughs> yeah, It's a comedy, obviously. And a lot of times it, you could argue with The Office that it fo- focuses more on Michael or Jim and Pam. But let's use Parks and Rec a little bit more because I think it's a little, probably a little more balanced with the side characters. They are co-workers working toward common goals, sometimes working against each other, i.e. Ron and Leslie. But they ultimately have this kind of deep-seated respect for one another. In fact, those two characters are diametrically opposed individuals. Sorry, I don't know if anybody else has watched Parks and Rec or The Office, so I might be talking a little bit in my just in my own experience, but those actually would be, in terms of party dynamics, a great way to look at the relationships and the personalities that are within fellowships. Speaking of personalities, just thinking about character archetypes, the types of characters that you might include in a fellowship. The community kind of has a phrase that we use as a framework, the five-man band, the leader, the heart, the smart guy, the big guy, and the lancer. But obviously not all stories follow this trope. Not all stories follow exactly those five archetypes. So let's talk a little bit about what characters work well for fellowships, what characters you might include. Talk about what characters you've seen in fellowships and how they've been innovated, especially how you might have innovated. concept of how formal or how kind of official is the concept of the fellowship itself, because that will, I feel like that often 
very clearly defines how many characters and sort of their interactions, like for example, Harry Potter, you know, the trio, the golden trio, there's no official kind of fellowship there, but they're all great friends in that regard. But if you compare it to say something like the Avengers, where there's an official team, it's government sanctioned, they have shield. You often end up with a lot of different archetypes that might not have come together naturally or, or in a, I guess, in an informal sense that kind of get pulled together because it's an official job. So they have to work together in ways that the unofficial or kind of loosely aligned fellowship doesn't allow. Yeah. I mean, touching on the dynamics of the characters and how they work, I think the Avengers is a good example because I think they're more akin to what Chris was saying, the military type of fellowship where they all kind of drew together to fight XYZ bad guy and then just made the team official, right? To take on bigger and badder threats the next time the next comic book was printed, you know? And, and within the, that group, you definitely had people that rubbed each other the wrong way. You know, Tony Stark didn't always get along with, say, Wolverine, for example, because Wolverine was an Avenger at one point, right? They didn't get along at all. They still came together in the end to fight Magneto or whatever the big bad eve of the time was. So you're talking about the potential conflict between characters and a fellowship. And I can't help but be reminded of your the, <laughs> the respectful disagreement before and how we're still here. We're still talking. We're still we're still discussing this topic because we feel it, it's a it's a very necessary part of, of the storytelling. We feel we have a motivation to continue talking about this, to continue hashing this out. Everybody listening, that's uh, we're we're exemplifying our own discussion right now. Yeah, I think the fellowship breaking up oftentimes because of conflict or circumstance or whatever can be a useful tool. So you don't always necessarily, once you have established a fellowship, need to be like, oh, well, now they always need to stay together, right? So like the easy example, since we've talked about Lord of the Rings a lot, I think is Sam and Frodo. And at, when they split up and you briefly brought up different tropes and archetypes and whatnot. So I would say that Sam's character is sort of like a, a caregiver type of archetype or trope. And a lot of times these are like, you know, they're typified by things like they're usually honorable, they're very loyal, and they are very selfless and they're trying to help another character or other characters. But one of their weaknesses is they usually just aren't really the leader type and they don't often speak up for themselves. And you can sometimes also associate them with like low self-esteem and different things like this. But because they were separated and then Sam had to be Frodo's caretaker, when you see Frodo's sort of like breaking down and he's unable to do it, right? Because they're separated and there's no one else to step up to the plate, it forces character growth with Sam where he has to be the one. Like, I'm going to carry you over the last hurdle. And that wouldn't have been possible if other members of the fellowship were still around. It's kind of like that concept of diffused responsibility, right? If there's other people that can handle the problem, you're less likely to step up. And so I think you can use separation and breaking up of your fellowship in really useful growth ways for your different characters. I'd absolutely agree with that. And I think that kind of touches on naturally as well, the, the concept of character death in a fellowship and how that affects the dynamics because, you know, separation is, can be temporary, you know, they can come back together after things have changed and you can kind of play off those new dynamics. But with, with character death, not always, but it's very often permanent because we, we keep going back to Lord of the Rings. So I might as well use the example of poor Sean uh, Bormir. When he dies, it, it does leave a, a huge mark on everybody in the fellowship. Frodo is kind of pushed out of the fellowship because, you know, of the drama surrounding that death because he feels he can't trust Boromir. So him and Sam run off. Merry and Pippin actually get a lot of character growth out of it because not only does it lead to their capture, but it also, you know, he died defending them. And so there's kind of, they start evolving from the comedy duo in a way that they wouldn't have gotten the chance. You know, you get... Well, the iconic trio of Legolas and Aragon and Gimli all hunting down Merry and Pippin. So I think, you know, character death can be a very useful tool. Yeah, I actually agree completely with that. And that kind of touches on what the, I think it was Sean said earlier about the the fellowship and how Merry and Pippin go off. And, and they weren't technically part of the fellowship, 
again, I kind of have to to disagree. I think I, I feel like they were still part of the fellowship, even though they were kind of off on their own. And yeah, they were the comedic group of the you know the book, but they still moved the entire plot forward. You know by recruiting Treebeard and his kin to helping fight the the battle at the uh, the tower later on. So I feel like they still were part of the fellowship, even though they weren't together with the rest of them being part of the plot kind of forced them to be shoehorned back into the, uh, the fellowship role. While you guys were talking, I really thought about Marion Pimpin's role after Boromir's death. And I'd almost argue that they became as Boromir is the representative of the men of the South, which would be, could be perhaps Rohan and Gondor. Those two characters became him in a way. His his role, what he could have been, those two rose to the occasion and became. You talked about those two galvanizing the Ents to march on the Tower of Warthank, but there's also the matter of both of them splitting again into two different entities, one going to stay with Theoden's court and the other one going with Gandalf to Minas Tirith. Both of them kind of occupy the role that Boromir could have occupied had he not died right in front of them. It made me think of something when Sean was talking about their experience with Boromir's death and Frodo's experience with Boromir's death. It doesn't really play a role in Lord of the Rings, but from a Dungeon Master perspective, I really enjoy multiple NPCs or characters, if you're writing a book or in a movie or anything, having different perspectives and different opinions on the same character. And I think it's super fun. So in that regard, I think, you know, Frodo left because he's like, Boromir's untrustworthy, he's corruptible, and I don't think I can trust anyone else. And so I need to remove myself. And he never really got a different opinion of Boromir, even though, like I said, it wasn't super important for Frodo's journey. He never like talked to Boromir's dad, for instance, or anything like that. Um, Whereas the the other two hobbits, Merry and Pippin, they came out of that with Boromir redeemed himself and he sacrificed himself for us. And he was a very heroic, honorable man at the end. And so you have these two groups, essentially, of characters coming away with very different stories as they move forward in the world about the same character. And it helps show for Boromir's character through the lens of others, his complexity as a character both his weakness and his strengths and different things like that so you can use these tools because you have a fellowship and you have so many different perspectives to really flesh out your characters and show them as like whole people in your world we talked a little bit about bioware games and talking about the dragon age inquisition game you can go to each of your companions you have dialogue options to discuss other people within their their group. You have the nine playable companions, but then you have the three advisors who also get lumped into your team and you're able to talk to your different companions and advisors about the other companions and advisors, which gives you a much more rounded understanding of them. I mean, we in real life subconsciously comprehend the different characters that are in our life through our own lens, sure, but also the lens of others. We'll ask one of our coworkers their perspective on our boss to understand our boss a little bit better. And then we'll ask our boss what they perhaps think about the team in general. And they might give an overview as well. And you'll be able to kind of glean more information about the character of those that you work with. Inquisition, I don't really consider it to have a fellowship for one major reason. It was basically the player character causing a lot of the grief that happened and brought everybody together yet at the end in the end they all came together but it was the result of one person the main character player character that the entire events unfolded whereas your other example mass effect they were taking on an entire threat to the you know the, the entire galaxy so it brought everybody together more of in a way that like lord of the rings for example brought everybody together and i'm just having a hard time thinking that inquisition is a fellowship. I and mean, it's just maybe me. <laughs> 
That's fair. And, and that could be the case. Perhaps as one of a fringe group that has that could be said arguably is a fellowship or isn't a fellowship. Kind of depends on how you play the game because you can form your team of three other companions. And then when you're traveling around the world, your companions have conversations with each other. And perhaps that could be a little bit more of a fellowship. But you're right, the nine or the actually the 12 individuals that are considered a part of your team aren't always necessarily could be a fellowship if you're in the strictest sense. So I, I do agree with you there. Yeah, I think it's just harder to nail it down as a fellowship because way back at the start, like I was mentioning, video game fellowship examples are very interesting because of the different dynamic. Whereas when you think of novel fellowships, I mean, I guess you could argue that Frodo and Sam were like the main characters of the Lord of the Rings, but it felt like all of them were almost equally important characters to the story. Whereas in video games, the player character is the main character and they have a fellowship around them of tertiary characters, but it's still a fellowship. It's just the other style where you have a leader and then a fellowship around them as opposed to a fellowship of roughly equally important or influential individuals. But we usually associate fellowship more strongly with the latter. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fantastic segue into my next question, which would be how do you ensure? That each character, and sometimes within these kind of large fellowships, I mean, you're talking nine for the Fellowship of the Ring, but how do you manage ensuring that all of your characters within this fellowship receive the appropriate amount of attention for characterization, for storytelling purposes? Very carefully. <laughs> D&D, a lot of the way it can be on... Well, no, I'm going to say it's it's equal between the players and the DM for D&D because you kind of, as a DM, you have to know when to usher on the scene, right, to move it forward. But it does require some self-awareness from the players because you have to understand that you're trying to share the spotlight and everyone get a chance to tell their story. I have slightly less experience in writing in this regard, so I'll leave that part for other people. But For me... I make a conscious decision to give everybody the spotlight. My group is eight strong. And throughout the chapters, I tend to focus mainly on each one in a different way. They're interacting with the others, whether they're interacting with the world around them or they're moving the story forward. I don't head jump, to use a term there, inside of a chapter. I tend to stick to one person's perspective. There might be another character there lending their their expertise to a situation or whatever the case may be. And the others might be there helping in a supportive role in a kind of secondary manner. But yeah, I mean, that's one of, that's kind of the way I approach it. I try to give them all something not only to do in each chapter, but also that item or MacGuffin or whatever it is has to move the story ahead in some fashion. It's kind of hard in some aspects. Once they get going and once they start interacting and building a relationship within the group, it becomes easier because then you know what they're going to do and you plan for what their answer is going to be to a particular situation. I mean, Raceland, for example, is just going to kill first, ask questions later type of scenario, whereas Strom might be like, oh, well, let's give the bad guy a chance to explain himself. <laughs> you know, and then they argue about it and move on throughout the chapter of what's going to happen. You don't necessarily have to start out with the fellowship. All too often, a fellowship might only coalesce naturally later on in a series, or or you might even have it so that if you've got plenty of episodes or novels, it may be that characters that are kind of only nominally part of the fellowship may get fleshed out later on. Example of, I, I think, where you can see like that sometimes characters just don't get the amount of attention. The Ghostbusters movie, you know, we have the, the main group at the start and we're very involved in their lives. Now, obviously, some of them we're more interested in others. It's been ages since I saw it, so I'm not going to be able to give any names, but one character has a romance arc that they're following, and then the others are kind of more background to that. And then later on, a fourth Ghostbuster is added, and he's not really given the same fleshing out as the others, but he still fits in just through, you know, there's some character interplay and stuff that lets us see that they're part of the group. So I think in that case, it, it might come down to which characters do you think are going to drive the plot the most or who are going to have the most, maybe not interesting, it's not probably not the right way to put it, but maybe the most compelling 
in some respects, arcs. And then you can build the fellowship around that because there are plenty of characters that don't really need a huge amount of fleshing out to do what they do well. You know, Chewbacca doesn't have a long arc, but everybody loves him. To some degree, talking about archetypes, talking about the skin of a character, and I mean that broadly, just the general appearance, perhaps the shallower behaviors of a character can often lend themselves to the character in the case of Chewbacca. I mean, ultimately... He doesn't have a ton of character depth, per se. He does, but not in terms of having a fully fleshed out backstory or be able to express every thought in a detailed way. Granted, they did a very good job of conveying his emotions, at least to circumstances well. But consider the fact that he is easily one of the most beloved characters in the entire franchise. His presence spanning every series or film series that has been released there's got to be something there to be said for a character that simply fits a mold that lots of people can uh, fit into. Ultimately, he's, a, I think it's even said, a walking carpet with a voice. I think he fits that trope of everybody needing somebody loyal by their side to help out. And I think that's why he's so relatable. He doesn't have to do anything other than show up and be there for Han or, or whomever just to get their back. And I think that's what his role kind of blossoms into. He doesn't have to have a lot of background because that's the way he portrays himself throughout the entire three trilogies. You know, he's there, he's loyal, and everybody can relate to that. And everybody usually wants that in, in, a, in a relationship or a friendship or even a fellowship. Yeah, I was going to say there are different types of characters, which this isn't completely related to fellowship necessarily, but this is more like the styles of characters you can create, right? And a very important character type is the symbolic character, where the character like Chewbacca is not very in-depth, but he represents a symbol or some sort of quality. And, you know, for Chewbacca, it's like friendship is basically what he symbolizes or companionship or loyalty or something akin to that. He doesn't need depth because he represents something in human nature that's so relatable that everyone identifies that character as like, oh, he's he's important. He needs to be here because he's an aspect of life that is very relevant. <laughs> I also feel slightly bad because I was like, oh, I'm like the D&D guy on this podcast right now. And I didn't really answer the question of like how to give people appropriate time other than saying be conscientious. So I just want to like add a little bit more from the DM's perspective for that is one of the difficult parts of tabletop role-playing games is not only are you dealing with issues of story, but you're also dealing with social dynamics because you're playing with other people, right? And I wanted to point out that attention can come in different forms for a character, and it doesn't necessarily all need to be via dialogue in like the main character of a scene where you're interacting with other people, because I think that's probably what most people will default to if they're newer to these types of games. Because a lot of people that play D&D games, even though it's a social experience, either they're socially awkward or they don't enjoy the role-playing aspect as much or something like that, right? Or even if they do, they might just be playing a character that's not super talkative or something like that. And so you, you really need to find out about both the player as a person of what they enjoy and the kind of spotlight they like. But if you're having a hard time with that, figure out via what their character is and what their character's strengths are, what kind of attention you can focus on that their character excels at. So if it's a warrior and maybe they don't talk very much because they have low charisma, if it's like Dungeons and Dragons and you want to give them attention, well, ask them how they're killing the boss with their attacks and let them describe it in like a few sentences. And even though it slows down combat, it's effectively giving them the same amount of attention you would the bard who's talking by himself to convince the merchant to give them a better deal on whatever, right? So you just need to find the appropriate scene for each character and player. And it is, it's hard, but I mean, that's the craft. You got to, you got to practice at it. The idea of just letting a character shine in their own way. You know? There's never any harm in telling somebody you thought their idea was good. You're going to give me a big head. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maybe a little bit of harm. So thinking about all of these characters, We've been talking about how to to manage them a little bit for some of the for the writers in the room. This is going to be a big question that's asked, especially in the fellowship for the DM in the room. There is kind of only one answer here, but your input is nonetheless important. Do you prefer as creators to deal with a single point of view in a fellowship or multiple? Why and how do you manage either of those? 
Man, that's a good question. I would have to go with multiple. And I think the multiple POV probably broadens the story better. I haven't DM'd nearly as much as I should. To me, even with DMing, you appreciate the multi point of view from your different characters because they all bring something different to the table or the game. Even something like Dragon Age, you listen to the other characters and what they have to say about a situation. Something they might say might give you pause to make a decision that otherwise you would have made you know, snap judgment with. The dwarves are going to frown upon you if you make this decision. You know, do you want to ruin the relationship? So you're going to have to have balance within a story arc, whether it's game DMing or even writing it. You're going to have to take those into consideration. So it's it behooves you to listen to those. As for managing them, I think that kind of harkens back to what I was saying previously, where you kind of have to develop the story around or the chapter around that character and what's happening in the scene. Because you're going to have to pay attention to different people's point of views and perspectives and take that into consideration. I'd be of the, in some sense, of the opposite view of having a single point of view, but not because I don't think, I mean, I have made a fantastic, uh, you know, case right there for why you should do multiple point of view. I, I guess for me, part of it is definitely comes down just to the ease of one point of view over the other, like or over multiple because it can be much handier to use one character to kind of use them as the viewpoint into the world. So they all have a very specific style you can then expand on and then use as the basis for kind of how people interact with that world. It's not really that great for a fellowship episode, um, I guess, to say, well, I like single entities or single point of views. But uh, I think it kind of adds a, a nice undercurrent in the sense that we're not getting to see everything about the fellowship. So we don't know how they'll react to something. So I guess it's reverse dramatic irony there for me in the sense that by having only one point of access, at least for the the book, maybe not for the series or the episodes, means that we're someone in the dark about the interactions. So it's almost like we're making those connections ourselves. And um, we have to puzzle out all the different things that other characters might like. And um, we may have to pick up on things that our point of view doesn't. So I think that's, for me, uh, why I prefer a single point of view is the sense that it turns the interaction into a mystery. I'll be the sort of middle ground. I mean, as a dungeon master, typically you have to go from multiple points of view because you're dealing with multiple players. And Daniel covered that very well. Um, But I also really enjoy doing one-on-one tabletop role-playing games, even with just like Dungeon Dragon systems. So if you are unaware, yes, you can do it with only one player. It's very fun. (laughs) I've done it. It's, it is fun. Yeah. Yeah. It would probably require a whole different podcast to go into all the different ways you can make it work. So I won't. <laughs> For exactly the reason Sean mentioned, a single point of view can often be really exciting, even with a fellowship. Because, you know, if you only have one player, they're probably still going to have important NPCs around them in their friend group or their fellowship or whatever it be. But having the the unknown and the the enjoyment of finding things out just on your own, I think, is a, a part of the game that can be underestimated or at least not realized because oftentimes like if you're playing with four players and two of the players have a conversation that reveals a very important aspect of one of their characters backstories the other two still experience it but they're just characters aren't there in that scene right and so if their characters do learn it later it's not as impactful if it was an important part of it that's just a sort of an unavoidable aspect of having everyone at the table at once it can be a fun part to keep that sort of stuff hidden if you manage to do just one player. So I think both aspects are have different strengths and weaknesses is what I'm trying to point out. Absolutely. I, I agree completely with your guys' point. Single point of view can be a great way to um, increase that mystery, increase that individual perspective, perhaps even speed up the action of the situation. But going back a little bit to a very well-managed example of multiple point of view is uh, Joe Abercrombie's Best Served Cold. He's kind of a master of multiple point of view, so it's not terribly surprising that he did this well. But essentially, you have multiple characters coming together to do a series of jobs, specifically assassinations. Each character within the group does have their own point of view chapters. 
many, many, many times do they do their voices get heard. And a lot of times the chapter for for one character will end with a thought that is immediately picked up in a completely different perspective by another character. So the chapter will end by saying a phrase and then it will pick up a different character's perspective, either repeating the phrase or finishing the phrase. But now that you switch perspectives, you have this kind of whole new understanding of what that meant to the new character, especially in opposition to what it meant for the old character. For any who are interested in multiple point of view, I would highly, highly suggest Joe Abercrombie. But in terms of craft, in terms of uh, how we make our stories have all of these characters in the fellowship going at the same time, how are we also managing those relationships? We've talked about the characters themselves, we've talked about their perspectives, but how do we manage their relationships best? I think this is an area where, in some senses, you, you really do have to break down the fellowship into its constituent parts to see what you want out of them, and then you put them back together. You know, we, we talked before when we were talking about Lord of the Rings about the, the, the conception of, a, you know, a, like a comedic duo in Merry and Pippin. But, you know, you wouldn't have done that naturally if you just said, well, let's throw all these characters together. They were, they were, you know, they were designed in tandem for the relationship and then they were worked in to relate to everybody else. So I think you have to kind of, you know, what do I want out of this character is often, to put it in a more poetic way, what does this character do for the narrative? What do they want to do for the narrative? Because I know there are plenty of people who think I'm one of them, honestly, that characters have a life of their own. I think that's kind of, you have to sit down and really work out what benefits a character most. Because often when you're writing or, you know, you maybe I'm sure Chris can say when you're DMing that you come across a situation where the characters, you had a particular plan set out for them, but then through their interactions and through things that they play off better as you're creating, they end up going a completely different direction. So I think in some senses to build a fellowship, you gotta, you gotta start with the base components and you gotta, you gotta manage that before you can even begin getting the relationships. And then that's how you end up with the fellowship being full of interesting interactions and arcs for the, all the characters. I agree completely. 100%. I don't even think I can even say it better. So I'm not going to even add anything. <laughs> Hi, that, was, that was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, like he said, is that was pretty much spot on. I guess the only even little bit of thing I would add to it is like from a DM's perspective, and I assume it's similar for a writer, like notes, 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 notes. Make notes of how these people are interacting, what they think of each other. Like imagine that stereotypical like sort of conspiracy theorist board with all the different pictures and the people connected via dots and notes and stuff. Like that's basically the work you're going to have to do, particularly as you add more and more characters to what you consider the main fellowship, because everyone's going to have a different relationship to one another in that fellowship. And like we talked about with the Hobbits and the Boromir, they're they're also going to have different perspectives on each character because none of them are going to, assumedly, none of them are going to be there for literally every event that the other character is taking a place in. It is a lot of work, but... It's manageable, assuming you don't have like 15 characters in your fellowship. You guys are brilliant. I'm going to move on. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk a little bit before kind of closing out. What are some cliches that are really easy to fall into in a fellowship? How do you avoid them? Well, let's identify them first, but then how how would you go about avoiding them? I think we kind of talked a little bit about like the, the tavern aspect of it the brooding hero or you know the mysterious guy in the corner or the fat barkeep and i and i think having those in the back of your mind as you're writing at least for me i tried to either keep those to a minimum or if i did incorporate them somehow i made them either fresh or new or i poked fun at it in in some aspects i mean that's at least my process for it i definitely feel um another um cliche that is very common just because, you know, it's it's a very easy relationship to write. It's kind of the trio. And then, you know, there's the brave one. There's the smart one. And then there's the one I'm not really sure anyone knows what they're supposed to do. I guess they're the comedy, you know, they're, they're the, the soccer, they're the Ron, or they're, they're there to be funny. And nah, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's all, all too often, like, if you see three main characters or three, like a small fellowship, you can often just go, okay, this guy is going to be the smart one, this girl 
is the brave one and 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 this small thin guy is definitely the the comedy relief so i think that can be definitely a big trope to fall into because it's just so universal to write kind of a trio like that yeah and that actually helps me with one of my points because i definitely agree with daniel where if you're doing like like you mentioned the the innkeeper one or anything like that you often want to either do it like tongue-in-cheekly or have a unique spin on it so it's a little bit fresh but at the same time with sean's example it's a good example of showing that just because something is a cliche doesn't mean it's necessarily to be avoided like some things are cliche because they get used so often because they work and they're just good if you have a trio you probably do want it relatively balanced because you're going to have a less interesting amount of achievable goals if everyone is the same type of character if you've got three strong guys who are not smart the amount of difficulties they can overcome is much more limited than if you had a smart one a strong one and the clever one so it it gives you more of a range so that'd be the only thing i would caution off off the top of my head because i think writers storytellers and dms or you know whatever media you're doing we hear the word cliche and we're immediately like oh that's a bad thing we need to stay away from it but i don't think that's necessarily true yeah and i I think that to play off of what you just said having a very varied party a uh an evenly balanced party or whether that be in dnd or in uh your storytelling if you go the opposite direction and you have a group that is a little more limited in their utility and their ability to assess and address a variety of problems if you lean into that that could be a, that can be an interesting way to tell a story as well where if the group does encounter something that is not going to be something that they can handle typically fail group failure is something that can be played with as well and i think that's uh, subverting that expectation could be something that could be used to great effect so we're coming to the end of the episode and we're coming to the end of the topic. We've, we've talked a lot about, about fellowship. We've talked a lot about friendships. We've talked about coworkers versus military units. We've talked about the dynamics between the characters, the dynamics within the characters, the perspectives that they offer. We've talked a lot about a lot of things that I think is going to be very, very helpful to our listeners, both as writers and creators and game designers. So starting in kind of the order that we began in, what are your final thoughts on the concept of a fellowship in stories. Give us some of your closing remarks. I think for me, the fellowship is such an enduring part of all our media and our games and everything that we interact with because uh, on a very simple level, it speaks to us about relationships and it lets us kind of envision like a cause beyond just one character going off to do what they want. So I think... For me, um, I definitely say that the, the fellowship is sort of the perfect vehicle to explore themes you want to look at, to kind of question things you're uncertain of, and to kind of allow people to get a different perspective on your works and on your um, worlds. And because again, we are the, the World Casting Podcast. I'm contractually obligated to mention that. So I think the best thing that a fellowship can offer is ultimately perspective. That would be my closing remark. Oh, he stole my closing remark. God dang it. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. It was a very intelligent and great outro. I appreciate it. So yeah, perspective is great. The only bit of like final other thoughts, and like I mentioned before, take lots of notes because character relationships are important. And I think one of the biggest sort of, at least for me, one of the biggest things I see in storytelling or DMing or anything like that, that I'm like, ah, that felt bad, is um, consistency. And if you take notes, it'll help you with that for not, you know, slipping up on how the relationships are working out. And you won't be like, oh, well, I forgot about this key detail between these two characters that would have made them react differently in this situation. Take lots of notes. I don't have a whole lot to add either. I mean, I think... In general, the Fellowship is a great vehicle for narratives and books in general. I identify with them the most out of everything that I read, uh, simply because I enjoy the camaraderie, the building up of experiences that each character would have. Because in the end, it not only 
affects them, but it affects the entire world that you're trying to build around them. So you're not just going to have your four or eight characters go through a blank world when they're traveling on their quest. You, you have to have a supporting cast around them, and then you're going to have sub supporting cast around the outer ring and it just kind of helps you expand write what you like write what you know right from experience uh, in your in your life whether it's military or co-workers or friendships and i really feel that you can as you know maybe a writer in any genre whether it's games or paper or even you know hesitant to guess maybe even like music it's all the same thing where you're speaking from or writing from the heart and your experience and yeah, I mean, that's the way I would go. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on, chatting with me about this. My week is absolutely made, so I appreciate that. Thank you to our listeners for giving us your ears. And I hope that something that we said today, something we talked about, helped better flesh out your stories, better flesh out your worlds. We can't thank you guys enough for listening to us ramble and talk and just have a good time. This has been Worldcasting Podcast, and we will see you next time. You've been listening to the Worldcasting Podcast, an affiliate production of World Building Magazine. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can check out our website at worldbuildingmagazine.com, where you can also find links to all of our social media and our Discord server. This episode was edited by Mackenzie Power and S. King.